Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Derek Witzke. Today's episode, we sit down with strength and conditioning coach and personal trainer, Sefton Clark. Sefton Clark spent more than 20 years as a professional dancer in both the Royal Dutch Ballet and other companies around the world. He talks about what it was like to train 36 hours a week as a 10-year-old, as well as his new project, which is the performance education platform Milo, or Project Milo, helping young and -and up-and-coming personal trainers in Europe make the best of their education. All right, Seth and Clark, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you. It's been a long time since we spoke. We have, uh, we've got a long history that goes back to our first meetings in Sweden yes. and who knows where else. Oh so I appreciate being on. Yeah. How you been? Oh, I've been uh, very good. Uh, ups and downs as, uh, as I think with everybody. Uh, it's certainly been a roller coaster the last few years. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good to be here and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And when I think back to, you know, the powers of Facebook, I Mm. have some old photos that on occasion will pop up. And one of the oldest that I have is a photo of you and I in Homestead, Sweden at the Aleco facility. And I think if that wasn't our first meeting, it was probably one of the first two. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think the first time we ever met was in Phoenix, actually. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Yes. That's right. Yes, and then uh, in Halmstad, and actually, that's when we were starting to discuss certain topics, uh, right? Or life in general as well, and similarities between uh, your athletic career and my dance career. And uh, yeah, that's when we kind of thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. There, uh, an, a, an amazing amount of carryover and similarity. And when we go back to, say, Phoenix, Arizona, mm. and I remember that one very specifically because that was the one that Nick Mitchell was attending. Yes. And Nick Mitchell at the time, for those that don't know, he's the founder of UP Performance yes. that has gone from being a, a UK-based personal training gym to somewhat worldwide, if I'm not mistaken now. He's everywhere. Yes, he is. He is. But it was a it was a jam packed room. I think we also had a, a crew from Australia in yep. that class. Yep. Um, how when we look at what we were studying in that course? For those that are listening, it was a biosignature course, yep. meaning which Charles Poliquin created a system for fat caliper uh, fat monitoring. Mm. How much of that type of system are you using today? All these years later, uh, I don't actually. Uh, yeah, tell me about that a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, of course, you know you're, you're, you're brought into this class, and uh, uh, and it's you know it's it's new information, and it's very exciting, and you know you, you want to use it. Um, but what I found um, over the years, obviously, you find a lot of the the, the correlations made between well uh, certain measurements and certain uh, um, and 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 certain uh, areas don't correlate right, um, right. but what I was finding also is that some people just felt uncomfortable being measured mm-hmm. um, and uh, after you know you know I tried it and I thought this or this this would work this would work and I just found that it would um, it didn't work as well as it would so I 
kind of ventured down the rabbit hole and uh, realized that it, it wasn't all, unfortunately, it wasn't all it cracked up to be, right. um, which was unfortunate. But at the same time, I got to learn a lot and meet a lot of uh, good people. Um, but in the end, it, with body fat measurements, you're only looking for the dial to go down in millimeters. Not even the equation is uh, accurate. Because right. uh, one of my mentors said, he said, look, it's an equation. It's math. It's not physiology. See, that's a huge point because a lot of people don't realize when it comes to the to the world that you work in now, and we'll circle back to your professional career as a dancer, but in in the personal training, strength, and conditioning world that we now exist, everybody wants feedback. They want some sort of measure or some sort of statistic that they can sell to a client and that client can be like, hey, what I'm paying for is working. Mm. And I think what happens is these arbitrary systems are developed, like a 12-site fat caliper site that's associated to all these different hormonal dysfunctions, right. which is really a pyramid scheme to sell supplements. Yeah. And you know, but people don't see that on the surface. What they see is, okay, if I do this 12-site caliper, I can sell my client on the idea that we can make specific changes to specific parts of the body. And in doing so, they will pay me more money because I'm more of a scientist than a coach. And I think somewhere along the way, a lot of pretend doctors were created from that era of private personal training. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, with those things, when they start going down that area, it, it, uh, it just ends up outside of uh, the scope of practice. Um, you know, in the end, you are a, a personal trainer uh, and you should be held accountable for what you do. However, when you start prescribing certain things, um, that fall, I find that that falls outside the realm um, of, uh, of, of being a personal trainer. And, and it falls well outside because you're somebody like myself that transitioned from basically a professional athletic endeavor mm. to a coaching endeavor. And like myself, you also then went back and became a therapist Yes, and you became a soft tissue therapist. So you could be more hands-on and have a little more, what we both thought at one point in our career, um, therapeutic role in our client's life. But after speaking, you've really pulled back from that side of it as well to really focus on just the strength side, yeah. which is in a sense, narrowing your scope of practice again, even though you're qualified to do yeah. other stuff. So why is that? Like, why did you make that push? Well, I think every personal trainer will go through this phase. And there was a fun graph uh, that I saw recently on uh, Instagram somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what, it, what it says is that, you know, uh, at first you have no knowledge, uh, and that's fine. You know nothing about it. Then you have a, a little knowledge, which can be very dangerous. Uh, and then you start uh, getting more knowledge, and then you realize that you know nothing. Right, right. Now, with, uh, with that, what happens, I think, find with personal trainers is that um, we, want, we start uh, very broad. So we need to um, 
cover a broad scope of, uh, of different areas in order, one, to find our specialty, mm-hmm. and two, to be able to understand certain areas in order to refine that specialty, and then go into that specialty further and further. So what I was doing was I was taking courses in different areas, so in nutrition, uh, and then I did the, the, the biosignature course, so for supplementation, and then I did one on soft tissue and more uh, internships on movements and things like this. So I had a very broad base to stand from, to start from. And then as the yep. years went by, I realized that I was just gearing myself more and more towards strength because in the end, and this is a very simple motto of mine, uh, in regards to anything you want to do, whether it's learning to play the piano or learning to write a book or uh, getting improving your performance, the idea is to get stronger, whether that's technically, right. physically, or mentally. See, that's a huge point, right? And it's... Um a lot of people don't think about this. And and I went through a very similar process when I started to integrate uh, soft tissue therapy into what I thought to be my coaching career. Mm. I did it with this intent that I was going to be able to solve these problems that I saw Mm. that I couldn't do with the weight room. Yeah. Not realizing that a lot of the problems that I wasn't solving were just problems I hadn't learned how to solve in the weight room. Right. And so, you know, and we've talked a a little bit about this just a moment ago before we started about incorporating weighted stretches and to, you know, and taking the, in a sense, taking the fascia through these extended ranges under load to create this long static hold. Now, a lot of people don't realize that movement has a tendency if done properly and then eventually done under resistance and then eventually done under significant load. It's the movement that heals the body. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately I wish I could put hands on every dysfunctional person Mm -hmm. and that that dysfunction would go away. But if they're still weak, the dysfunction will remain. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I I couldn't agree more. I think you will, get far better results from uh, a very good strength training program uh, covering any uh, aspects that need to be covered than anything else. Um, Because in the end, strength training or resistance training is a form of loaded stretching. Uh, Right. And if you understand which area may need work, you can accommodate an exercise to help with it. I mean, I've used uh, cable overhead triceps extensions to help somebody uh, loosen up uh, to, to gain more thoracic spine mobility. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. If you understand, you know, the last 15 degrees of overhead work is from the thoracic spine and they can't, and, and, and obviously if they don't have shoulder issues, you can work by using the position of the cable going from a high position. And as they gain mobility, you bring the cable down lower and lower. That's one way of doing it. It sounds silly and it, and it sounds too simple, but it works. But it works. And I, and I think that's really what it comes back to is, you know, Phil Lerney said this when I spoke to him last, strength and conditioning and weight lifting, and Ryan Fanley said it as well, 
is really simple. And the problem with it is it is so simple that people have to complicate it mm. to make people feel that they need to pay exorbitant amounts of money for it. Mm. But what you're really paying for is not always the expertise of human movement. You know, like, f for sure, before I make this statement, you don't want to be going around doing fucking things crazy and breaking your body. <laughs> and we see that all the time, right? <laughs> but... You know, the, the vast majority of really strong, powerful people probably didn't have a personal trainer. They probably stumbled through it on their own and, and then eventually got with a peer group that shared knowledge, mm. which you could argue became like a group of trainers amongst themselves that no one was paying money to. But with that being said, the, the majority of, of knowledge that a personal trainer is sharing is the application of systems more than the actual execution of certain movements. So when somebody hires someone like yourself that is an expert in a field, in my opinion, what they really have to understand is they're hiring the application of systems that are going to get to them, get them to an end goal without them falling apart first. Oh, no. But... Uh, yeah, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and uh, I think with that regard, what what uh, and what we try to teach in our le in uh, in our um, in our lessons when we tr when we teach the trainers is that you have you have the theory, mm -hmm. which is great. You need that as an underpinning. You have the experience, however little that may be, but you need the experience in order to understand uh, how a program feels. But then you have yep. the reality, and therein lies, uh, as you say, the the under uh, why people tend to hire you because um, you come in and you can see how they are on the day as well, and you can adjust to how they are. So you have a program. Absolutely, you have to be able to vary it depending on the day as well. Uh, yes, and that's 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 the interesting part. That's the that's the part where personal training really becomes personal, and of course they 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 you need they need you because you're helping them apply what they probably already know, but just in a in a way that's going to get them there maybe slightly faster. Absolutely, it's uh, you know it's like something as simple of an analogy, but when you look at the creation of the company McDonald's and there was a documentary that was done on it and you know you take away the fact that I'm going to use a McDonald's analogy for personal training but when you look at the restaurant McDonald's it was created by two brothers that were not the greatest burger makers mm. but they were experts in making a systematic way of efficiency to get the burger made and at the time, everybody was just mom and pop grill shops that they would make a burger here, make a burger there. People sat down at a dinner table back then as well for stuff like that. And these guys came in and they're like, no, we can do six burgers in a minute with this automated system. And what I often remind people is that long-term periodization is taking a hamburger, which is quite simple in design. Yeah. But finding a way to optimize it so that the efficiency of making that hamburger 
is a long-term process. And not only is it a process, it's better than everybody else at the time. And when you take that side, that's the, I always refer to that as the science and theory of strength and conditioning. It's the (laughs) automated hamburger, right? Yeah. But the problem is people come in to buy that hamburger for an emotional reason. Mm. So so somebody comes in and they're feeling a little sad and they're feeling down. Yeah. They buy it for one reason. Another group of people comes in and they're having a birthday party. That's their reason. A third person comes in and they're completely indifferent. And they just want a meal. So when you look at personal training, it's like, yeah, you have the science of application. You have the science of a systematic way of doing things. But you have to stop and be like, why is this person here today? Mm. And that reason or that simple analogy is where the art of strength and conditioning or the art of personal training mm-hmm. takes over from the science Absolutely. because you have to, you have to understand the individual and then you have to be like, okay, this can't just be another mechanically punched out process. What do we do today to make it an individual process again? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, in the end, a lot of uh, a lot of it does become psychology as well, you know. Very much trying so. to find the real reason behind why this person wants to change, you know. And one of the one of the questions we I just keep asking: Why? Why do you want this? Why do you want this? What is it? Where are we going? Why? 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 Uh, and eventually, you'll you'll get there, but maybe not to start with. But um, yeah, it's it's a very very important. Uh, place to get to now was it a was it this exploration like with yourself with coaches that you're surrounded with that got you thinking about creating an education platform like milo your performance and education system that you guys do now for coaches uh, oh, no i don't know no uh, <laughs> i think yeah what what uh it was basically because we realized um that a lot of the the trainers were um, trying to use systems that were far too advanced for their clients. Interesting. And we realized that we, that we needed to, that we, everybody needed to go back and learn the basics again because we found right. that they missed a lot of context um, to the movements and why you do the movement and, uh, and um, why everybody's different. Uh, and it started as kind of just like a weekly lesson. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and now it's grown into, you know, it's grown into a full blown education system and it's used in our gym internally. So all of the, uh, apprentices that come in have to go through it. We, we're having people from outside now coming to do it, but we just stick to the basics. It's not, um, it's not super advanced in any way, but if what well, we give people the choice, we give them the course and if they choose to go deeper, we can certainly go as deep as they want with it. So, you know, the first, the first few weeks is all about the basics. So we teach them the squat, we teach them the deadlift, we teach them the bench press. Um, but within those, we teach them the variations of. So it's not just about a bench press. It's about how to do a push-up correctly, uh, why, uh, why everybody should squat, but not necessarily back squat or front squat. There are a million different right. ways to do it. Uh, and through the course, they learn... Um, they learn the different anthropomo- uh, anthropometry of people, learn different levers, uh, and so. And then, you, when we start to give them tests and programs, we always ask them, "Why are you giving this exercise to somebody? 
What is the purpose? Why are you doing this? Okay, if you were to do this, um, what would happen? How does this variable change if you do this? Uh, and then we right. start dealing with the more personal things like stress, how that, how it affects everybody, and so how how it affects everybody, how there's good stress and bad stress. Um, and then we start talking about the in, uh, we call them intakes. So it's more like a, an interview with the client. You know, body language, intonation, articulation. We teach. We try to incorporate uh, the human aspect as well, and how how you should present yourself, but how you need to be human when you meet these people because they're coming into a gym and most of them feel very vulnerable. That's a huge part of this. And and almost everybody I've ever spoken to that sort of transcended the, you know, global gym, $7 an hour, punching clocks, no consistent training uh, patterns with any client's mentality to what I call the next level, which is the educational level, the advanced coaching level. It all comes back to how do you take that information and interact with the human side of the psychology? And, and everybody, you know, reiterates this. It's the idea that you can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you can't make somebody feel confident and comfortable enough to give you their, their hundred percent, let alone give you their money. Like, let's not even talk about the financial side of the industry for a second, but give you the confidence that they're going to sort of follow your lead and do it with inhibition. Mm. That is truly the mastery. I think of the coaching client or coaching athlete relationship is establishing that, that confidence in you through, as you say, proper body language, uh, through interaction on a humanistic level, emotional empathy for the fact that they're probably embarking on one of the most psychologically vulnerable experiences of their life at that moment. Um, you know, like I often say, when somebody comes into the gym and they've never been in before and they've decided to, to spend money as a physical manifestation of how desperate they are to change something about themselves mm. because not everybody has a lot of money. So this could be a big investment for them. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, if they haven't been injured or they're not dealing with something that sent them there, they're very, very unhappy with themselves. Yeah. And that is a that is a really vulnerable spot oh, to be absolutely. in, both as a as a coach and as a person coming through the door. Absolutely. And then you're you're bringing them into this very strange environment where people are moving to them in a very weird way. And yes. of course, they're you know you're they're going okay. We're going to do some yoga poses just to warm up, and they're looking at you like you know you've got two heads because yes. it's an alien movement to them. So you know, and trying to get them comfortable with these strange movements is one of the first stages and you know you have to explain to them everything not just what happens in the body but if you look there are plenty of and i point out i said okay maybe this seems like a strange movement to you however if you look at the guy over there doing his body weight squats and pushing his knees out to the side it's just as odd as you're doing to try to get them to see it in a in a different way Uh, right you know, and it, it could just be that maybe they they're okay with the first two movements. Maybe they're and you say, "Well done, that's great, it's enough." And they say, "What?" You say, "No, no, it's enough, it's fine." And that's that's an interesting thing because you bring bring a perspective that a lot of people lose. Like, 
in an American system over here, say at a, a, a global gym, 24 hour fitness, life fitness, they buy that 50 minutes with a trainer. That trainer is almost expected to make them do 17 exercises, right? Make them sit on a leg press, make them do some tricep extensions, whatever. But they just, they keep them moving for 55 minutes because they have this falsified mentality that people are coming in to buy a product much like everything else that's processed yeah. shit, right? So because your mentality is significantly different, it always makes me wonder is how much of your ability to coach and teach movement is a byproduct of the fact that you danced at the highest level in ballet with the National Ballet in the Netherlands, for example, for a decade, if I remember correctly. Uh, like how much of that carries over? Um I think a lot of it, because, you know, <laughs> as you well know, being an athlete, is that you, 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 you know certain limits, and you know, right. okay, I'm done. If I go any further, I'm going to break. And that comes with experience. Of course, when you're young, you, you go and go and go, and then maybe you break, and then you come back, and you're fine, and then you go again. But, you know, when you get a little older, you're like, okay, no, this is not a good sign. Um, and then I think with the, with the, with the coaching aspects, I know what it's like to be, uh, I remember we had this conversation actually, when you are mm -hmm. so in shape that you just feel invincible, you, right. you could, I could walk into a studio, I could work for eight hours, full out, not a problem and walk away and be fine come back, do a, do a performance, wake up the next day and go again. But I've also been at the other end of the spectrum where I've literally had to crawl out of bed because everything hurts and literally peel myself <laughs> off the floor yeah. and try to get my ass to physio to try to be able to move again and starting... Because you have another... Because you have performances coming or practices yeah, it coming? Could be, it could be anything. Or that you've just hurt yourself and you literally cannot move and you're thinking, shit, yeah. I have a show in a couple of days. What the yeah. hell am I going to do? So I think having that experience of feeling invincible and feeling completely broken uh, really help with, uh, with, uh, with the coaching aspect of how somebody comes in and how they feel on that day as well. It almost allows you a natural empathy because it's a funny two-edged sword because I know you can probably relate to this. You know when someone's really blown out and really hurt and you can empathize with that because you've been there. Yeah. But to their to their detriment or what they don't realize is you also know when they're really full of shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you have, you've been probably 10 levels of hurt deeper than they are at that moment. Oh God. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's funny as yeah. well because, you know, sometimes of course in, in personal training, you know, people may have a little strain or something here and there and it's normal. Uh, it, it can happen. Um, and, uh, it, it, maybe you miss something. Maybe you, you, you don't know how, <laughs> and of course for them, sometimes it's the first time that they maybe have strained something, uh, ever. And you go, yeah, it's okay. It's going to get better. It's not a problem. They yep. look at you as though you're the most insensitive person in the world. 
<laughs> like you have no heart. Oh. And you know, it's fun, funny. It's quite global of a thought. So I remember back to being in, you know, in the NCAAs where you have a training room and a training staff and, and they deal with all the athletes from all the sports. And it's funny because they talk about the same thing from the athletic training standpoint. They say that when most high school athletes come into the NCAAs, the first year, regardless of what sport they play, but it seemed like sprinters and 400-meter runners were their worst because they were quite sensitive to the volume changes and, and lactate. But what would happen is for the first year of most athletes' lives, they live in the training room yeah. because they've never felt that shitty before. Right. It, it's a whole new level of volume. It's a whole new level of training, and they're sore all the time mm. and they think they're hurt they think they're injured yeah. so they're always coming in and then as with everything juniors or seniors you know your your three four and five year athletes you can't drag them into the training room mm. like you you couldn't pay them and they're the ones that probably should be in there the most yeah because they're doing the most damage they've just developed such an incredible tolerance to it yeah yeah. That's fascinating. Now, when we look at your background, especially as an athlete mm -hmm. and as a dancer, how old were you when you were selected in the UK or when someone saw that you may have an aptitude? How did you get on that road? Oh, crikey. Um, I thought, it's, it's one of those things I think, uh, I mean, I saw it on the television and I must have been about six or seven. Um, yep. And I thought, I want to do that. And, you know, uh, I went along to this, you know, little ballet class and uh, uh, my dad, uh, my, my stepfather took me in uh, and he threw me in there and apparently I didn't want to leave. Uh, and I think it's like uh, any kind of um, athletic endeavor. You, it's just something that you do. Uh, and right. I, I carried on and, of course, then I went to, I got bored of this school and went to another school. Uh, and with this school, they were great. Um, and as the years kind of went by, um, my teacher said to me, well, why don't you um, audition? There's this uh, school called the Royal Ballet, uh, and they're holding, right. hosting their first ever summer school. Um, why don't you audition? She said, you won't get in, but it'll be a good experience. <laughs> so um, I knew nothing about this school. I, I knew. And how old, were, how old were you at the time? I was, uh, must have been nine, no, ten, ten. Ah, so just a child. Yeah, yeah, tiny, tiny. And I, and, yep. and I was super skinny and very small. Uh, not that I'm much bigger now, but I was smaller then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I went along and auditioned for this summer school. And the, the people at the summer school uh, asked if I would audition for the school. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, well, okay, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. I really have no idea what this school is about. I knew that I found out that it was a boarding school. Um, and you live there, you know, a little bit like Harry Potter, I guess you could say. Uh, and so there was this long process of auditions uh, over a few months. Uh, and they gradually, of however many thousands of, of, of people auditioning, they, they uh, whittled down to so many people uh, and you went through ballet classes and uh, like intelligence tests uh, they orthopedic tests they x-rayed your wrists to see if you're going to be tall enough if you're too tall or too small 
So they did all of these tests and uh, eventually, you know, they said, well, we'd like to offer you a place. Uh, wow. So it was me and 10 other boys. Um, and of those 10, uh, of those that survived the eight years, uh, I think there was maybe four or, four or five of us that got through. Uh, and uh, only a few of us that ended up um, with jobs uh, and get to a certain level as well so yeah it's it's very select but then any how how rigorous was the training for that eight years oh oh, (laughs) god Uh, so we would well we'd have academics as well so it was an all-in-one school Um, but we would have a a two-hour ballet class um, then we would maybe have some form of, it could, could have been, uh, like a partnering class. So we call it, um, yep. then there was maybe, uh, a variations class. So you're looking at, it's two, three, four, five, maybe let's say six hours, maybe more daily, six days a week. So you're looking at 36 hours of dancing practice yes. in a week. Yes. <sighs> yes. So that's why I find it funny now, of course, when uh, people say, I'm really active. I go three times a week to the gym. I go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me tell you what I was doing when I was 11. Yes. Yeah. So, it's, you know. And so you moved through the school, and from that point at graduation, Mm. um, for those that survived, a lot of people obviously are hoping to get picked up by a a professional company, I would assume, or some sort of television work or some acting, something that can take that artistic level to the next. Yeah, absolutely. and for you, what was that process? Did did you have people coming after you, or did you have to work to get to that next level uh, again? I think I was quite fortunate, to be honest, because uh, when, I mean, I had a few injuries uh, while I was in the, what we call the upper school, so that was kind of like college, between 16 and yep. 18, uh, and I, I hurt my knee, uh, meniscus, uh, so I had to repeat a year, but in my graduate year, um, I got to work with uh, the Birmingham Royal Ballet uh, and the Royal Ballet, which was very, very nice. Um, okay. So that was good experience for me. Um, however, there were a few things. Uh, there was a change of directors at the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Uh, one wanted me and one didn't, and that's fine. Um, and then I was thinking about uh, staying at the Royal Ballet, but they didn't have a contract at that time. They said, well, we can give you one, but it's in six months. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do for six months? Right. Um, and then I was offered another job at a place called English National Ballet. So you go and you audition. Um, but then I went off to Europe uh, to one company in Dusseldorf. And I had my mind blown. Um, really? Yes, because the quality, the standard of the dancers, I wasn't expecting. You know, because I'd been in such an institution, you're only taught to see one way. So you right. only see your goal as going to this company or staying here in the UK and being in the UK and doing this. Um, and I saw this company and I just thought, my God, these guys are amazing. Uh, right. And I had one evening to decide what to do. 
Uh, and I went to sleep on it, and I woke up, and I said, I'm going to Dusseldorf. And I went there hoping that uh, if I worked hard enough that I would be giving opportunities there. But I also knew at the time it was the director's last year there and that he was going to Zurich, Switzerland. And maybe if I could prove myself, I might get taken along with him. Very interesting. So uh, off I went to Dusseldorf with one suitcase. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and I started working there. Uh, and of course, you know, you have your first shows and you're really trying to prove yourself. And um, it was funny, actually, when I uh, we, we, we were doing we were halfway through the season. And um, it was very cute because uh, we were sat after one of the performances and um, one of the other dancers was talking about because she, they'd been watching the show, said, oh, well, you know who you really notice on stage? And uh, they said, oh, well, this person and that person and this person. And she pointed at me and she went, him. And I looked and I, and I looked, I looked behind me and I thought, what? I said, yeah, we really notice you. And I thought, wow, after wow. everything I've been working for, that was a really uh, nice moment for me. I was like, wow, somebody noticed me. That was really nice. Um... So then, wow. you know, it was fun. And, you know, I think the same with you. When you perform, um, for me, it's not, uh, it's not about ego. For me, it's about giving back. And I really enjoyed to give back to, I really enjoyed giving back to the audience, but also, you know, to those that helped me through it all and everything. And it's just to show them how much I enjoyed it. Um, and with that, what was nice is I got taken to Zurich from there so I had two years in Zurich um, and then I made a bit of a strategic move to Vienna mm -hmm. um, because uh, I went to a company that maybe wasn't as high in standards as Zurich because when we moved to Zurich the standard was even more phenomenal we had dancers from American Ballet Theatre, New York City Ballet Cuban ballet, people from the Paris Opera had come. It was, uh, it was in, oh, Frankfurt Ballet as well. It was incredible. There was only three was, dancers, but it was, it was insane. And so everybody was at the A-plus level. Oh, my God. These guys were freaks of nature. These weren't even the 1%. These were the 0.01%. How beneficial was that to you as somebody to be around that level of of competition for one but ability on the other these well what you'll find is that these people are so level-headed and so nice that all they want is the best for you do you think that comes from true mastery of something um one well for sure that yes but they 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 just want to be uh the best, but not in right. a in a in a nasty way. They want you to succeed too, and um, they're comfortable in themselves, right? Which is really important. They they you know, I think if you if you look at uh, a lot of uh, very high level athletes, they'll tend to be very tend to be very level headed. I would agree because of the amount of uh, pressure that they're under. 
Um, and they would just push you further and further and further and further until, you know, you fell over. But if you fell over, they'd be like, brilliant, you tried. Now get up and do it again. Right. Get up and do it again. So it's like they could take you to that threshold of self, but at the same time, they were also going to be almost like the figure in the background that has this incredible expectation. Yep. So they're like, we want to see you push to failure, yep. but don't lay down on the ground because we wouldn't. Yeah. And so when you were in this world and, and you'd made the transition to Vienna, which I assume eventually transitioned you to the Dutch ballet, yep. how intensive was it at that point in your career, training-wise, practice-wise? If you were training 36 hours a week as as 11 or 12-year-old, mm. Did that type of requirement continue once you got into the to the professional performing side of it? Um, well, you, you, when you start your your low rank, so you're known as the quarter ballet, which is the the body of the ballet. So work is quite intense. Uh, you do work a lot all the time, um, and as you go through the ranks, um, once you hit kind of soloist area, um, you start to dart. You will dance less, um, but your responsibilities are far greater because you're you're carrying the name of the company more so than you would be if you were a quarter ballet dancer. I understand. And um, yeah, that that that's one of the the fundamental differences between being a quarter ballet, uh, being quarter ballet, and a and a soloist and a principal. Uh, you have a much greater responsibility, but you still have to dance quite a bit, uh, right? Um, because the the dancing tends to be more more intense as well. So you may only have a variation. It it could be, you know, if it's a classical ballet, maybe you're on there for a couple of minutes, but it's just you, and if you screw it up, everybody knows. Yeah, and it's on you. That's intense. It's on you. It's not on anybody else. You can't blame anybody else. <laughs> or you, when you another piece that's just 20 minutes of you and another partner just dancing all out. How exhausting. And I know you say that you get fit enough that you feel bulletproof. Mm. But for someone that isn't or hasn't trained to that level, mm. how exhausting or rigorous is a 20-minute performance? When you finished? <laughs> Um, you don't know what's going to come out of where, to be very honest. <laughs> so it's much like running a metabolic 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know whether you're going to throw up or shit your pants. You just don't know what's going to happen. See, that's really interesting because people can't really grasp that. Yeah. A lot of people look at the artistic arts, you know, um, our performance art. And we see like, you know, some of the stuff I've seen of you on YouTube, these brilliant performances and everything is such incredible precision and power and strength and grace. But to you, you're doing an athletic endeavor where you're in your mind, like running 195 heart rate, mm. just like, holy shit, yeah. I got to get through this and I got to do it perfect because the moment I get behind that curtain, my body's going to be like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know you're just gasping for air, and you're like, uh, 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 I, I can't go on anymore. And then the curtain opens, and you have to take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> 
the illusion of performance art is incredible to me because it is it is physically physically demanding like you know i've been fortunate enough to to go and watch some shows both in new york and las vegas yeah in a it looks so effortless. It looks like they're the picture of stoic composure. Yeah, of course. Right? And meanwhile, you know, they could have the flu and been puking in a bucket for 45 minutes leading up to that five-minute yeah. presentation. Or during. Yeah. Or during. Yeah. Or during. Yeah. Absolutely. I've seen people come yeah. off stage, hurl, and go back on stage. With a smile yeah. and grace. Yeah. And when you made the transition, because you were with the the Dutch Ballet for a long time, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many how many years did you perform with them as a professional? Um, well, overall, including them, it was almost twenty years. But with them, I danced for twelve years. So half of your career was with yeah. with one production, yeah. and and your wife was also a a, a very well established dancer as well. Yes. Yeah. Did she go through? the same type of process that you did to get to that level? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She did. And, and I think maybe for females, it may even be harder mm -hmm. than, uh, than and, and, males. And she was Italian, correct? Yes, yes, yes. So so went through, like, you went through the Royal Ballet. She went through the Italian equivalent, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. But then she also went through the Royal Ballet as well, partly. She did the upper school. So she did the final two years there. And then she went off to a company in England called English National Ballet. Mm -hmm. uh, and they actually do a ton of performances. There's some ridiculous and amount, well over 200 shows a season. 200 shows More a More than, I think it was some ridiculous amount, 230 or 40. So you're potentially running multiple shows a Saturday. Oh, for yeah. example. It could be a double show okay. on Wednesday, a double show on uh, Sunday. There could be, yeah, you know, I mean, you're looking, it could be eight, eight shows or more a week. And when you were in this industry, obviously the other side of it is crowd presentation. So it's not just the technical artistry of dance, but you also have to learn, and I know we spoke about this years ago, but you had to learn how to move, how to have facial expression, how to present yourself so that those in the crowd see a performance as well as a physical performance. Mm. And how much of that comes into play, and you'll see the transition, how much of that comes into play now with your ability to interact with the public when they come in for that first visit to your gym? Um, I think, it, well, it helps a lot, actually. Um, yep. Not just for me, but also because um, part of what we do as dancers is that I say we, I said what I used to do. Uh, sure. It's funny, we, we touched on it earlier, it's about the identity thing, but we, we'll come back to that. Um, we read bodies. You know, right. you can tell. You can tell when somebody's a little off, or you can tell if they're a little out of sorts, just by it. It could be how they sit, it could be how they walk in, it could be anything. Um, and... Knowing those things and also how they express themselves, whether they articulate with their hands a lot, um, how how they uh, maybe how they go off uh, um, when they want to talk about something, maybe how they avoid a subject. Um, and uh, for me, it works very well because then I can uh, try to adapt how I am. Right. Um, to help them express themselves further. 
right? In a sense, it becomes a dance, right? It becomes how, how you move to their energy, how their energy then responds to yours. Because inevitably at the end, as, as a coach or a trainer, regardless of the field specifically, your sole purpose is to get the very best out of somebody. Of course. And, and that's it. You know, um, I think even more so, uh, you know, people might argue this, but I think on a human level, more so in personal training than even coaching. Um, I think in say traditional coaching, say I'm coaching American football, I need somebody to be really good at a job. Mm. Um, I don't really need to know if they're a good person. I don't even really particularly care whether or not uh, they love or like what they're doing. Um, but I need them to do a job and I need them to be really good at that job mm. because that's all that matters. Whereas in the personal training world, you're trying to actually change a human being yeah. on some level. Yeah. Um, you know, cause, and, and this sort of pulls me back to where I wanted to go with this in relationship to your professional career as a, as a performance artist and as a dancer in a ballet, even people that come in, say in a lot of pain or an injury, which we have both suffered through, I know. Um, <laughs> but if they're living in that severe discomfort, yeah. what people don't understand, it's ruining their life. Yeah. And talk a little bit how you getting through, which I know were a lot of injuries because you were a very powerful dancer that jumped a lot, yes. um, took a huge amount of impact and how that impacted how you deal with people that have, you know, in, in a sense, chronic, acute, or really significant injuries mm -hmm. as a coach. Um, well, I, because of, of the injuries that I had, I can certainly empathize with them. But I can also yep. make them understand that it will get better. Yes. Uh, and what I try to explain to them, and you know, I, and I say, look, I'm, I say, and I'm very down to earth about it. I say, look, you know, you, you've come here for help, and I'm going to try to help you as much as I can. But I'm not offering uh, a miracle. So what right. what I'm offering is um, a window of opportunity. So let's, uh, you know, and I say, we'll look at every aspect um, of uh, how you are day to day. Uh, and we'll go from there and I say, but what, I, what we try to do, for instance, let's say somebody has back pain. Uh, and maybe, it is, uh, maybe there is some kind of dyspathology there. Um, you know, and we'll, 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 I'll say, okay, well, you know, we ask them what makes it feel better, what makes it feel worse. Uh, and I and I, and I relate my stories to them, uh, so that they understand right. that I've actually been there, and I know how it feels. Um, uh, and then I because everyone feels like they're the first and last person to have a knee injury or a back injury. No, until they exactly. And you you, you know you. I said, well, you know, I, I, this has happened to me, and uh, you know, uh, I literally, you know, I, I I literally couldn't walk, and I had to get myself to. Uh, such a place and then start from here um, and then you know that you you try to relate that to them and then you you try to get this window of opportunity and we say well okay if you're in pain 24 hours a day let's see if we can find a one or two minute window that you're pain free yeah. absolutely and then once you have that one or two minute window we're going to try to expand it and then and then I explain look it's going to take time uh, and yep. I say and it's not uh, it's never perfect. It may get worse at one point, or you may have a setback. 
but we just have to keep going and know that I'm going to be there with you and that I understand how it feels because at the time you feel so lonely and so, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, well, isolated, you believe that you're right. going to get better, that there's nothing that's going to, 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 to help. And there's something that a lot of people don't realize with those that are suffering from chronic pain or chronic injury related to lifestyle or an accident or what have you, is the people around them, even the people that really care about them, they, it's, humans are funny this way. They will know that something's wrong with you mm -hmm. and they will be empathetic and sensitive to that for a while. Yeah. And then there comes a point where it's not like they're saying, hey, I need to get on with my life exactly, but they're, they get used to you being hurt or they get used to you being uncomfortable and they start to become quite conditioned to it yeah. and maybe a little cold, right? And, and I think it's a bit of a survival mechanism. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, these people are at fault for losing empathy towards someone that is injured. Yeah. But because of that, it does create the isolationism. Yeah. And for the person that is injured, like you say, sometimes you're just looking for that first five minutes where you're like, wow, I don't feel anything. Yeah. Th this is amazing. And then the pain comes back. Yeah. And, and I know myself going through multiple, multiple surgeries. I remember the first time that following a, a significant setback where I didn't have uh, a loss of function for the first time, or I was doing something and I was doing it without conscious thought of sensation. Mm. Right. So I was like, Oh, I'm doing a movement and halfway through the movement. I'm like, Oh, I don't feel anything. Yeah. And that's such a relief. It's almost like having a toothache go away yeah. that you've had for four or five years. Oh yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. It's intensive. Now, you spent some time as a coach following your professional career with the theater. Yes. How much different, in your opinion, is it working with the private sector as opposed to the professional sector? Um, I think that uh, with, with dancers or with athletes in general, um, they're very much uh, – if you, 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 you tend to have to hold them back a little bit. Sure. Um, because if you tell them to do something, they'll do it, but they'll just do it, you know, every day, you know, 50 times a day instead of, you know, you only need to do it twice, three times a week and this twice for now. Um, because they come from that 36 hour a week mentality. Well, yeah. And it's never good enough and it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. You have to do more, 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 more. Um, and then sometimes with, with, uh, let's see. No, uh, with uh, with the general population, let's say, um, sometimes they some of them need a little push here and there. They need to be motivated a little bit more. Uh, they need to understand that the bare minimum won't suffice in their case. Yeah, but they also they've never truly tested their own limits. So right. First, of course, there's a a, a, a very gradual build up phase because I would never throw anybody into a program and expect them to do a full program straight away. Make it very, very clear to them that, you know, like I said earlier, their first workout may only be 20 minutes. It may only be the warm-up because they're so deconditioned. 
but it's a start. Right. But it's a start. Um, and then once they're, you know, once once you can get them maybe to get to a full program, you know, you can start to push their limits a little bit further because they've never, like I said, they've never truly tested them. So they don't know how far they can go. But be- and, there, no. and not to cut you off, but there's a realization for a lot of people that, and it's sort of weird to think about, but you may be working with somebody that has never in their whole life experienced lactate threshold. Yeah. They so when they feel that for the first time, you know, for the, for those that can identify, it it feels like you're either going to die or you're hurt. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it's it's brutal, and let alone you know the it dreaded delayed onset muscle soreness from the first time you truly train a large group body part. Yeah, yeah, that's an injury in your brain. You're like, I, I've I've hurt myself. I I can't bend my legs. Yeah, and it's not that they can't bend their legs. It just hurts every time they do. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's funny because I think sometimes that maybe we come from a, a background where we have seen the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows when it comes to performance and injuries and, and the balance between the two. But if you were to reach out as you're doing now, but maybe more so in the sense of what would you say to the people listening as if they were attending the Milo seminars at Vondel gym, Mm -hmm. but what is like three big takeaways since you started doing this coach's education that you really think that people need to start focusing on? Um, focusing on in terms of uh, being a trainer or? Yeah, I think in particular, what is that, you know, like here's three takeaways, guys, that you really need to focus on if you're going to step into this industry uh, and do it properly. Yeah. So they need to focus on the why a lot of every aspect of it that's very important um they need to look at themselves and their own identity as well that's really important as a personal trainer because you are on show all the time Uh, let's expand that a little bit the identity of of the self because i think I think that's really important because a lot of people are not putting enough energy into what is it that you are presenting to that person when they step through that door. Mm. Um, You need, you need to know um, who you are in order to understand what you can offer. Um, So in terms of, being at and you also and if you can do that, then you'll be able to identify with the person in front of you. Um, and I think that's very very important. People need, especially people wanting to be in the personal training business, need to take a long, hard look at themselves um, to see uh, exactly um, what it is that they want to achieve within the personal training industry because if you can do that then you can have a very long career i think that's a huge point because the big turnover problem that we see in the private sector 
is people that get into PT because it's either a free gym membership or they get to spend time around things or people that they somehow feel that they're similar to. Mm. Um, but what they don't realize is when you make the switch from participant of a weight room to coach of a weight room and the people that are in it, all of a sudden you now become the guide to, you know, infants into this world. Mm. And if your goal is recognition, ego, increased self-esteem, false identification with being referred to as an expert, mm. what are you actually doing for that person that's standing in front of you? Probably not a lot. And I think that you're hitting a huge point. Why? We know the, that the why has always got to be the principle. Yeah. But identity of self the who you are and what you're able to actually tangibly do for that person that comes in in that potential grief state of of psychological demise because they're someone called them fat they feel fat their clothes don't fit they don't move very well they they're out of breath when they were playing with their kids in the park the million negative reasons for them to take attempt to take control of their life if you're not the person that is going to positively impact that life change then you're probably going to be a detriment. The person will have a terrible experience and they may never actually achieve any of those things that they set out to do, yeah. you know, and that's a huge one. And what would the third be? Um, <clears throat> the third B, uh, let me think. Well, your identity. And then, well, there's, there's, well, knowing that uh, we actually, within the fitness industry, know so little about uh, what uh, what works, because right, um, you know, and I, and I say this to to the people that come along to the lessons. I say, look, we can only tell you what we know, and what we know is extremely limited. The rest is is you know. A lot of it is, is like I said, is, is, is experience as well. So it's taking the theory and the research and everything and using it as best as you can as a guideline, um, but knowing that we only know so little. You know, it's funny that you say this because a number of coaches I've spoken to recently they they say the the worst part about the industry, professional coaching or personal training is the answer to a lot of the questions is it depends. Yeah, and it's a sucky answer, but it's a, it's it's a terrible answer and it's the most honest. Yeah. <laughs> but if well what what I think what you need to to add to that is um when when we say I think this is and and, and I'd say this is the difference between um being a a good coach and a great coach is that you can say it depends but then you need to say it depends, but, and you need to add to the it depends and give the reasons why it depends. I agree 100%. Like a lot of things can depend on scenario, but really good coaches, my opinion, create an alternative plan system. Yeah. So if someone goes, all right, I want to lose, you know, X number of percents in body fat over the next 10 months, or I want to add you know, this to my back squatter performance, you can say, okay, how do we do that? And your response is, it depends on yeah. these three different potentiations. So 
what is our plan? This is our plan. But listen, you're not losing any body fat if A, B, and C don't happen. Yeah. You're not going to get stronger if A, B, and C don't happen. So it is dependent on that process. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's a big one, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I think we see it both from our perspectives having been at the top of a of an endeavor, uh, physical endeavor. We know it as well as anyone. It, it, someone goes, well, how do I get to the Dutch ballet? How do I make it through the Royal Ballet? Mm. Your answer is going to be, it depends. Absolutely. And, and it's going to depend on a shitload of variables. Absolutely. Some of which you don't even know are coming down the road yet. No, exactly. The majority you of know? which you don't know which is coming down the road. No, I mean, it could be as simple as you say two different directors having two different opinions on a matter. Yeah, exactly. That's a massive depends. Yeah. So just as we get to the end of our time here, a couple of things that I just wanted to, to sort of bring up or, or move into is in terms of how you structure, uh, because it seems to be such a powerful thing for you. How do you structure that introduction with a new client? What are, are a couple things that you do personally where you're like, these are techniques I use when Mrs. Jones or Mr. Jones comes through that door and I'm their first experience in a gym? Um, oh, well, what I tend to do now is I won't meet them in the gym. Interesting. I will meet them outside for a coffee somewhere else. Take away that, that initial fear mechanism Absolutely. completely. Uh, and I will have a conversation with them. So I won't sit there with a clipboard and take notes. I will, and I won't sit across from them. I will sit uh, kind of to one side of them because it's more informal and it makes them feel more comfortable. Uh, and I will sit and have a coffee with them and I'll have a chat and I'll and say, oh, so uh, you, you're very interested in personal training. I'm really happy about this. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you a few questions, but would you like to know about me? And, uh, and just treat it as a conversation so that they feel comfortable. When you have this conversation with them and you, and you make this initial contact, have you seen a significant improvement in the relationship quality from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 well, I mean, the majority, I think I'm very fortunate because uh, the majority of my clients uh, I mean, the longest I've had is uh, since the beginning, six years. Uh, and I, I always ask. Six years. Yeah. And the others, always more than a year. Never had anybody less. Um, I always ask them, I say, well, you know, I always ask, well, what did you think when we first met? And uh, most of them say, I really liked that you didn't, that you took me for a coffee. Or I meant, I, some of I, I've met them in their house or because they've been yep. so busy. Or, but I've met them outside of the gym environment. So you take that human interaction, that humanistic side to what we try to do, and you establish that as principle one, mm -hmm. create a human connection yeah. that you then are going to be a guide on a journey instead of somebody that they show up to full of animosity and a clipboard. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and that's huge because you, the proof is in the pudding. Your, your youngest client is a year. Your oldest client is six years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and people have to understand relationships, period, friendship or not, if you can get six years out of somebody without life getting in the way is, is fantastic, let alone a six-year relationship where there's a financial exchange and a, 
and a exercise com- com- component. I mean, that that's a huge amount of time. Um, I know like with myself working with the princess in Saudi Arabia going into year five, mm. I'm, I'm shocked at myself yeah. because you realize how much time you're spending with an individual. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it, yeah. if you're, if you're an asshole, it's going to show up, you know, oh, for sure. like, and if you're fake, and it's going to show up as well. Yep. If you're fake, if you don't have the answers, if you've, if you've been lying along the way, it's all going to show up <laughs> and it usually takes a lot less than six years. It probably know, takes more absolutely. like six months. Right. Yeah. yeah um, so before I let you go, what do you got coming up in terms of seminars um, at Vondel Gym or perhaps at people that aren't within the gym system that you're associated with that maybe they could reach out to you, get a hold of you, perhaps get more involved with the Milo Performance Education Platform because I know it's a very good one and I know it's one that I would highly recommend to people that are getting into this industry. So a little bit in terms of how to get a hold of you, how to get a hold of the, the platform and, and how they can become better coaches. Uh, well, I mean, the, uh, our Milo Performance and Education, we're, we're working on uh, European accreditation at the moment, which is fantastic, which is, which is a really big thing because then you'll, you'll have a nice uh, European certificate, which means that if you decide to switch countries, you have a certificate that's valid anywhere in Europe, which is great. Uh, Massive. Besides that, um, we have we have our we have our website which is uh, projectmilo. Uh, dot nl. Okay. They can always write an email to me or my partner Valter. Um, or I'm on Instagram. I'm, I try to be active on it. I'm not very good at it, but uh, I do try. Um, so Instagram is is another thing that, that they can certainly look for me there uh, under my for name. sure. Um, yep. But the, the Milo thing, like I said, is that we, um, we strive uh, to give a lot of context to why um, and how we do or how we are as personal trainers. Um, and we go through uh, group class scenarios and all of the anatomy and biomechanics and the differences and stress and sleep. And, you know, it's a very, very, very dense course. Um, and the next round is going to be in May. Okay. Uh, and that will be what we're going to do is change it a little bit where we have, um, instead of, we, we were doing it weekly and now we're going to change it where we have, um, three hour blocks every three weeks. So it just makes it easier for everybody to come in. Uh, and one Fantastic. Sunday, um, and it, it, like I say, it's a very comprehensive course. Um, so if they're interested, yeah, more than happy to to talk to them about it um, and how they can go about um, enrolling in the course. That's fantastic. And I'm glad that there's more coaches like yourself. And there's a number from the UK, uh, the two Phils, both Phil Graham, Phil Ernie, yeah. um, that have taken the time and the, I guess the passion side of it to create a platform for education because a lot of coaches create these online things and we know as well as anyone Mm. that it's basically clickbait funnel system where there's no actual real development of coaches happening. Mm. It is more somebody pays a couple bucks, they get some information, they watch a couple videos and 
on to the next yeah. where you guys in particular are actually making the physical availability of self. And I think that's a huge component of this because you three in particular are the three that I see doing this the most in this field because the moment that the education platform adjusts and you have to sit down in front of coaches and the coach can put up their hand in front of how many other people and ask that question that may have a hard answer, Mm. you go from salesmanship to coaching. Oh, absolutely. We, um, and we, we, we give a lot of practical work, but we also try to simplify everything as well. Um, so that it's, it's easy to understand, you know, we've, I've, we've been down the very difficult world of, uh, of, um, of, of, uh, trying to understand things like, you know, when, when someone whips out a word, it's scapular dyskinesia. Uh, (laughs) and and, someone's like, what the fuck is that? Exactly. Well, it's just how the scapula doesn't move so well. Um, and you know, people talk about things like scapulohumoral rhythm and we, we, we play with that and we say, well, we call it a relationship because, and then we, (laughs) we change it and we, we say, well, actually, if you look at the, the humorous as, um, the male or, and the scapula as the partner, so it could be the female and we start playing around with these, uh, links and then we give, uh, the muscles as we teach the anatomy, we explain the relationship between the muscles and the scapula and the humerus and, we try to simplify it, but uh, it's a big practical application of it. And as you say, if you're in front of a class, um, you will never learn more than teaching others. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more with that. I know from the years I spent with the Polycrum group, even though we were teaching what they wanted as a curriculum, yeah. it never stays that way. You end up having to answer a lot of questions yeah. outside of the context. Yeah. And... You know, people often say, well, you know, how do you have so much fundamental knowledge on strength and conditioning? It's because I got stuck standing in front of a couple thousand people over the course of of three years. And eventually there will be almost every possible variation of a question asked. Yeah. And, and you get used to answering it and you get used to finding solutions and you get used to finding the correct terminology. Um, and sometimes you get stuck, and, yeah. and that's fine. But for the most part, you really do educate yourself out of sticking points pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's, uh, yeah, it's huge. And I would say anybody that wants to master coaching, maybe give – you don't have to do it for a living because public speaking isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I do highly recommend that you get in front of a group on occasion. And even if it's only a one-hour free seminar to increase interest in your personal training at a gym, yeah. do something that gets you in that environment because it will make you a, a significantly better educator mm-hmm. in the field that you're in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before I let you go today, is there anything else you want to close out with uh, in terms of just thoughts or processes or, Uh, in a sense, upcoming projects that you got sort of an eye on? Oh, crikey. No, I I haven't. No, I'm so busy with with the whole Milo project at the moment. um, And we're just trying to get that out and um, for the next round and, and, you know, make it nice and prim and proper and, uh, and all the rest of it. So uh, with with that, we've, we're solely focusing uh, on that at the moment. That's perfect yeah. because that's the way it should be, especially if you're going for EU accreditation. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Awesome. The, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and we've had a lot of fun uh, making this course as well with uh, with all the articles and the films and uh, the practical sessions and what works and what doesn't, you know, uh, with with in regards to assessments. And, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, and, of course, it stops me from maybe taking a few courses that uh, I would have liked to have taken. But, um, you know, th that's a sacrifice that I'm more than willing to take, <laughs> to be very honest. I agree 100%. I think we get into this mindset where everybody becomes a student for too long and they forget that eventually you gotta, you got to apply that knowledge back into the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you yeah. know, put your own spin on it as well. Absolutely, because the medium of, of your course as you as an instructor could be the the right piece of information said the right way that will impact somebody that has been struggling to get or to develop an understanding of something. Yeah. And and that's what I always tell people. It's like there's no end to education uh -huh. because there may be the guy out there or the girl out there teaching something that you haven't heard yet mm -hmm. that you're failing to understand. Yeah. But when they say it and they say it their way, maybe exactly what you needed to hear. Oh, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think uh, one of the ways that I've found with, with uh, teaching is um, people like stories. So um, I try to tell stories when, uh, when we're talking about these things so that they, at least if they don't like the story, they'll remember it. Absolutely. With uh, retaining information. The best coaches I've ever met are always the best storytellers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for you taking the time to, to come on the show. It's, uh, it's nice to catch up yeah. as well. Um, obviously, we go back a very long time. So I can't thank you enough, and I really appreciate you coming on Ecobolic. Oh, Derek, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. I've uh, really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, uh, let's continue this uh, more often. <laughs> yeah, is, exactly, both on and off the Absolutely. air. I, uh, Sounds good. I definitely want to check back in with you uh, in the next couple months and see how the next evolution of courses went with Milo yeah. and talk a little bit about the progression of things. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Derek. Awesome. Thank All you. All right, take care. You too. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Woodski on his Instagram or at DerekWoodski.com.